0: newspaper since 1971. Bonus time to Ben Jarofsky's show as I speak. It's Friday, March 18th, 2022. This headline in the, uh, New, York, uh, the New York Times, Chicago Tribune, kind of sums up a couple of things we're going to talk about uh, with my distinguished guest. And here's the headline. It's a quote. I don't see a light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> Uh, this is specific <laughs> this is <specifically, laughs> this which is Which tunnel? <laughs> which exactly <laughs> our distinguished guest cannot contain himself. Yes, which tunnel? There's two tunnels. One, uh the uh the war in Ukraine and then there's the COVID tunnel and we'll be discussing but I could talk about also inflation tunnel, but I don't forget we may run out of time before we uh get into that. The feds uh raising interest rates. Uh, an attempt to, to combat uh, inflation. All right, uh, my distinguished guest already uh, cannot contain himself. He's he's read up and ready to go. Uh, introduce yourself, distinguished guest.
1: Uh, well, thanks, Ben. It's great to be back. Um, I'm David Ferris. I'm Associate Professor of Political Science at Roosevelt University, um, Contributing Writer of the Week, and the author of It's Time to Fight Dirty, How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics. Um, and, uh, yeah, I don't know if we're going to run out of time or we're going to run out of Tunnels, or the light at the end of the tunnel is another tunnel,
0: I guess. Yes. Uh, <laughs> the light at the end of the tunnel is another tunnel, absolutely. Uh, all right, uh, let's uh, talk Ukraine. Uh, last, I was pretty gloom and doomy. I've been pretty gloom and doomy uh, for the last couple of weeks. Uh, but you said something today that p- a brief glimmer, of light right before we went on the air i have been i've not been paying attention to the news uh this morning I've been preparing for various shows and uh, you said uh that you had a, a brief glimmer of hope so why don't you uh expound about uh the meetings between the leaders of the united states and china um sure so um
1: president biden um, was uh had a, had a video meeting with uh with chinese president uh xi jinping this morning apparently went two hours um, all, all we really know about it so far um, is that um, the outcome was like some, some conciliatory statements coming out of China about U.S.-China relations and, um, and working towards world peace. Um, and uh, apparently he told Biden, and I quote, the Ukraine crisis is something we don't want to see. Um, and that's a very sort of subdued, I think, way of, of China signaling that it disapproves of what Russia is doing. It disapproves of what we see as the impact on the global economy. Just so far, it's not even four weeks, right? Um, But uh, it's caused a lot of instability um, in in markets. And um, of course, that's not the worst thing happening in Ukraine, right? (laughs) Um, Obviously, there's the series of human tragedies unfolding there um, at the hands of Russia. But uh, I think it's a very positive sign that Biden was able to you know, prevent China from attempting in some way to reinforce Russia or give Russia cover on the world stage. Um, You know, Z stopped short of outright condemnation of of Putin and that kind of thing. But I don't think we're going to see that anyway. I think it's more important, whatever China does behind the scenes, to signal that, um, you know, kind of everybody wants Russia to stop doing what it's doing and that Russia doesn't have a real ally in this um, is, is hopefully one more factor that could Get them to the negotiating table and have them make the kind of concessions that um, that Ukraine will need to see to to sign anything. So, I found I found that to be good news. But uh, obviously, it's uh, we we don't have the full report of what happened during that meeting yet, and uh, we'll have to, I think that'll happen probably later today. So,
0: so uh, pardon me for uh, at the outset for being uh, very jaded and cynical. But I, I look around the world at any given time. There's slaughter uh, going on, wars going on. Uh, and people go on with their lives, uh, myself included and everybody else in this country included, uh, in this particular war and, and let me add, there's always some sort of a justification. If you find, you, you can find someone to justify virtually any war. I've discovered that, uh, any, any, pro, any persecution of humanity, you can find someone to justify it. In this particular instance, I can think of very few people, uh, outside of Tucker Carlson, uh, who are uh, finding any justification for what Putin has done. Some of my friends on the left, we'll get into that. Um, so why do you think that's the case? Uh, we're at a situation where I can't think of a, an ally that Putin has. Maybe you can help me out here. Uh, an ally, a significant ally anyway, that Putin has uh, in his invasion of Ukraine. Why is that so in this instance?
1: Well, I mean, there's a variety of reasons. One um, is that this, this was completely unprovoked in a way that just can't be spun unless you're willing to believe um, just blatant propaganda, right? Um, Ukraine has not attacked Russia. Uh, Ukraine is not systematically oppressing ethnic Russians in Ukraine. Um, this is all the product of a long political crisis stemming from the creation of Ukraine after the after the Cold War. By creation, I don't mean that such a thing as Ukraine never existed, right? I'm talking about the country of Ukraine, um, in its current borders, right? Um, and so the absence of any kind of, um, any kind of precipitating reason for this invasion combined with the particular brutality that Russia has shown, um, a willingness to employ against civilians in, in major cities, um, means that, you know, it's just, it's, it's been a shock, I think, to people around the world, um, the, Ukrainian media operation and um, President Zelensky himself have been extremely savvy um, in building solidarity for Ukraine um, a- around the world, and I think that's also a factor here. Is that um, how, do you, how do you put it? they a <laughs> Ukraine is a, a, a protagonist with which we can sympathize. You know, I mean, if you, if you think of this as a drama of some sort. Um, you have Putin who's, you know, who has the, uh, has the charisma of like a slipper. Um, and then Zelensky who was like already a TV star. I think probably everybody sold him short because of that. Uh, I don't know if you saw that Netflix is putting his show back on, um, that, uh, yeah. <laughs> the, the show <laughs> where he, uh, where he like, ended up to, uh, ex- president. yeah. So, um, yeah. I, and I think, um, certainly if the, I mean, if the war had ended really quickly and he, had, Putin had gotten what he wanted to deposed the regime in Kiev and, um, installed some puppet regime and, and there hadn't been a lot of death. we might be having a different conversation but like the, the reality is that the war is basically a stalemate at this point um, and uh, a stalemate punctuated by missile attacks on apartments and and places where civilians are sheltering and uh, we have a massive refugee crisis brewing here I like think three million people and counting have fled Ukraine um, and there's you know these they haven't done anything to anyone. You know, um, not not that it not that it would justify violence against civilians, even if Ukraine's government had done something terrible. Um, But but the reality is that Russia has no justification for what it's doing. And it's violating even its own commitments that it has made to Ukraine in the past. So um, I I don't think it's I I don't think it's much more complicated than that. Um, A lot of countries don't want to see a precedent set where neighbors can simply seize territory when they are unhappy. (laughs) Uh, or when they want it, Um, this is the the whole point of the architecture that we put into place after the Second World War, was like, yeah, you know, the borders might not be perfect. And, I, you know, you could sit down on a map and be like, yeah, this border should probably be here and not there. But we're not going to do it because it's will open up this huge Pandora's box. And we don't want to encourage interstate aggression um, of the sort that led to the Second World War. So, um, you know, I said before he invaded, I I thought that Putin had, had miscalculated, miscalculating very, very badly here both in terms of how the war will go and how the world will react to it. Um, And and so far, um, I think he's really fallen flat in a way that's quite consequential. And now it's just the question of what's the off-ramp here, right? I mean, he's not going to flatten every city in Kiev because there'll be, I mean, in in Ukraine, there'll be nothing left. So how do we get out of this? Um, I I don't know, but I I, I do know that that Russia has really stepped in here (laughs) in a really serious way, which is, I guess, the only silver lining that you can take from this drumbeat of, of, uh, of awful stories about death and destruction that are, that are coming
0: out of Ukraine. Well, by the way, uh, I've lived long enough to see, uh, many, uh, uh, recreations of the, of the notion that you have to, to save the village, you have to destroy it. Uh, which came out of, when I first heard of it, it was in the Vietnam war. So I don't hold it past him. Uh, Destroying as much as he can in order to uh, save it, and I have that in quotes, irony intended. Uh, the point being that uh, once uh, a belligerent leader gets caught uh, in a war, it's really hard to extricate himself. I saw that in Vietnam. Uh, I watched Vietnam War it, it get extended uh, because uh, Richard Nixon wanted to find a face-saving way out of it, so he was bombing North Vietnam. Not him, literally, but he was sending pilots to bomb North Vietnam up until uh, almost up until the time we signed a peace treaty around Christmas of seventy two. So, i I can see uh, uh, a tyrant like Putin just continuing until someone stops him. Uh, by the way, so what's your sense of what's happening in Russia in terms of how Russian uh, citizens are responding uh, to what their uh, country is doing?
1: Well, um, I, I heard. Uh writer uh, Masha Gessen interviewed on um, Ezra Klein's show up in New York Times earlier this week. And uh, she was detailed. She had been in Moscow um, up until very recently and was detailing how I think a lot of people with means um, in, in the big cities are are leaving. Um, she said a lot of people were having goodbye parties to, to, um, to mark the their departure from the only place they've ever known. Um, and that, that's a sign that I think a lot of Russian elites um, uh, are anticipating... Um, a real economic problem in Russia. Uh, they may also be anticipating political unrest um, or instability if uh, if there is a move made against Putin by by some set of actors and you know in the military or whatever. Um, you know this, there could be a civil war. There could be further economic deterioration. Um, you know we don't know what the masses of, of Russians are thinking, um, but uh, my guess is that. Uh, those who are connected into global networks um, can see how the world is reacting to this and can see how bad it will be for Russia. Um, people who are perhaps less plugged into um, to what's happening overseas or who read and believe um, Russian media may may of course support uh, may support the war. I don't know if you saw uh, Putin had this rally last night um, like a kind of a trump style rally and it seemed like he was uh, so afraid of getting assassinated that. <laughs> They built like a a completely separate stage for him that was sort of insulated from the crowd. Um, You know, he he doesn't look good. Um, If I were him, I would be worried um, about the blowback from this, Um, not just from his own people, but from the generals who who he has ordered to go in and do this, Um, many of whom have been killed. um, And uh, it's just, uh, it's not going well. And uh, you're right, he could keep it up. Um, But one thing that, a factor here that was not, present when the u.s prosecuted its war in Vietnam long past the long past the point where anybody had any hope that we could win um, is, is the sanctions and the, the sort of the, the global unity against Russia um that's possible because Russia is weaker but I think also possible because the cause here is is so uh, so obviously ridiculous um you, you know I was, I, my dad was in Vietnam I mean I, I'm a, of course a very significant opponent of what we did in Vietnam but Like you could at least make a case for it, right? I mean, like, like South Vietnam was a country. Um, However, weirdly, it was brought about, and um, this, uh, you know, this this war is just it's just preposterous. You know, Um, it's just uh, it's just naked aggression. So, um, yeah, that's that's what I see. Uh, I, I, you know, the 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 real Russia analysts uh, think that Putin is secure, as far as what I can tell. It's unlikely that a move is going to be made against him. but nevertheless, as he continues to feel that pressure um, from from these sanctions and from the weapons that um, that Western countries are still delivering to Ukraine, that that might be even a more important factor, right? which is these anti tank and anti uh, anti aircraft defense systems are have ground the Russian advance to a halt. And, and at some point, if you're not actually making any progress, um, it's not clear what it's not clear what he's doing there. So. Can Ukraine, and, and I've, I've started to see people talk about Ukraine pushing Russian forces back, you know, like kind of like counterattacks, um, because Russia has put as much of its military force as it possibly can into Ukraine. Once those forces are exhausted, there's there's no one else on the way. Right, modern warfare is now you can't just like, take a peasant um, from Siberia and throw him in Ukraine and expect expect a good outcome. You know, um, these uh, good soldiers have to be trained for, for months and months and months. Pilots have to be trained for months and months and months, um, and Russia is, seems to be losing these people at a, at a significantly higher rate than Ukraine. Now they have a numerical advantage, but uh, eventually that will dissipate if they can't if they can't make any progress. And, and Ukraine has proven to be quite adept at, at attacking supply lines and, and stealing equipment, and uh, I guess not stealing; it's repurposing, right? Uh, repurposing Russian equipment um, and st- stopping these convoy advances with you know relatively cost effective. Um, measures like the, you know, the anti-tank missiles and things like that. So, um, of course, the longer this drags on, the more it's just like, it's all just it's such pointless killing. You know, I, I, I see sentiment sometimes that they're celebrating the death of Russian soldiers. And that, that makes me sad too. You know, that's that these are mostly just kids who are conscripts who have been thrown into the war. Um, and so we should be, you know, we should be hoping for a, a diplomatic solution that, um, you know, the, It doesn't force Ukraine to give up um, what's being fought for right now. But uh, certainly I still, and I've always believed since the beginning of this, that that some concessions from Ukraine are better than this mass destruction. So we'll just have to see whether the the leadership of both countries comes to that
0: conclusion eventually. (laughs) And uh, what concessions do you think uh, could be an inducement uh, to get uh, Putin to stop the the, uh, onslaught? Well, we know what Russia wants.
1: Russia at this point, I think has, has probably, and they won't say this out loud, but I think they've given up on um, overthrowing those, the Zelensky regime and and, and and taking Kiev in any meaningful way that doesn't involve flattening it. So um, I think that what, what Russia would like is is for recognition that Crimea is part of uh, Russia. That's the peninsula that Russia annexed in 2014 for, um, the last time they invaded Ukraine. And then recognition of the, the independence of these um, these fake countries that they just set up in, in the two Eastern provinces of Ukraine, um, Luhansk and uh And, Donets. and, and, <laughs> and they want a pledge of alliance neutrality from Ukraine. Now that's a, those are three, that's a, a, a big set of asks from a country that's, that's losing, that looks like it's losing the war. Um, those are, those are winners terms that you impose on the loser. And so I don't think that, I don't think there's actually any chance that Zelensky is going to agree to those terms as, as they are. Um, but um, a pledge of, like a neutrality pledge in terms, of, in terms of NATO seems fine to me as long as it comes with some sort of security guarantees. Um, and, I, and this is where I find this also puzzling because if Zelensky's going to hold out for security guarantees that are short of NATO membership and Putin wants neutrality, you know, the subtext here is that if, if Putin does this again, then NATO might intervene, right? And so I, it, it's just, I don't understand the distinction between, you know, they're officially part of NATO or they have security assurances from NATO that should the terms of this agreement be violated, um, that the, you know, NATO might authorize military force to push push Russia back. So I, I, again, I think, I think Putin has really gotten himself into a pickle here. Uh, the best thing for Russia, the best thing for Ukraine would be to would be to withdraw from from the areas of Ukraine that he has advanced in since the beginning of this war four weeks ago, um, and the longer uh, the longer his forces struggle and, and are stuck and mired, uh, particularly around Kiev, uh, I think the the more likely it is that Zelensky may conclude why should I you know why should I do any of this um, if if we have you guys on the run so um, it's you know. But it's hard for me you know, sitting in my basement to know <laughs> to know the, the exact military situation on the ground and you read different people saying different things um, in the media and on Twitter and it's, um, it's it's an information battle space as well. so I wouldn't want to draw any firm conclusions, but um, you know some some sort of neutrality pledge uh, Ukraine gets into the EU and Russia is warned that if they ever try this again, it'll be a you know much more serious response from the West even than you see now. Maybe that could get it done. Um, I'm concerned about, you know. What does happen with with Crimea? I mean, Crimea has been part of Russia for eight years now. Um, Zelensky wants it back. Um, that that seems to me pot- potentially to create even more problems than we already have. And um, as, as much as you don't like to see aggression revising borders, you could look at Crimea and say, like, okay, we're going to make an exception here to, to to end this fighting and to um, because what you really want is not just to end the war, but to end the dispute from which the from which the war is stemming. You know. Um, and even if it's if it's unilateral, one-sided aggression from Russia, uh, if there's something that can be given up that would that would satisfy Putin, um, get him to back off, uh, get him to agree to a permanent uh, ceasefire, and then a, and then a, a peace treaty, it, it, it seems like the majority of people in Crimea probably want to be part of Russia. So, what are we doing here? You know, we're going to sacrifice thousands more civilians for, for the sake of restoring a status quo ante that was not satisfactory to the people that actually live there. Um, and again, I'm not getting any excuses for, for Russia seizing that territory by force, but the reality is that it's done. Um, it has been administratively incorporated into Russia, and it's hard for me to see um, any way that Putin agrees to, to, to giving Crimea back to Ukraine. I think he would have to be fully defeated in the war. And I think for all of the heroism that we see from Ukrainian forces right now, if they tried to, you know, if they did get Russia on their heels and then they tried to push into Crimea, um, my fear is that you would see the reverse situation of what you see now. Uh, that is the ukrainian forces would get bogged down and then you know just just more death for no reason and yeah. you know, more innocent people dying for no reason
0: more death for no reason all right let's talk about the, the political fallout in our country uh i just shake my head in dismay at maga <laughs> every day brings more dismay at maga if i if there's any i guess i don't i can't say any uh laugh at this but i just Disbelief at the rhetoric, the ever-changing rhetoric of MAGA as they try to figure out what's the most realistic political stance they can take uh, in this conflict that began with them uh, sort of adoring Putin, viewing him as a soul brother to Donald John Trump, and now they're trying to figure things out. Uh, how do you see it? How do you see the um, the sh- sort of shifting view? of MAGA and Republicans as a whole, uh, toward this conflict? Well, as
1: stupid as most of these people are, they can read polls. And so the, (laughs) the reality is like this, Russia's war is very unpopular. Um, and so it's, it's really only this hardcore cadre of, of total maniacs who seem to have not graduated from the second grade that are, that are sticking with Putin here officially in public. Um, and if you saw the vote yesterday, but um, the house voted for, uh, to, to remove to, to unnormalize trade relations with Russia. Right? Um, and that vote was 424 to eight. Um, and I'm sure that you could guess like six of the eight um, <laughs> knuckleheads on the Republican side. Yeah. Um, you know, our favorites, uh, Marjorie Taylor green and Lauren Boebert and Matt Gates, you know, the, I don't know what to, they should form their own caucus of just like completely, you know, like lunatics um, who are not actually interested in governing. Like they're just, they're like a a living, breathing publicity stunt Uh, that's not going very well for them. I mean, they couldn't even get Madison Cawthorn to to join them on this vote. (laughs) He's like one of the craziest people in Congress. So um, Russia actually seems to be a rare instance where there is, there is a fairly robust bipartisan consensus that, that the U.S. should be doing what it's doing. Right. Like I think that Biden has, has walked a pretty fine line here between a, a kind of escalation in which you know we're providing more or less unlimited weapons to <laughs> to Ukraine in the middle of a war. We know exactly what's going to happen with those those weapons. They're they're going to kill Russian soldiers. Um, and we but we're just not going to pull the trigger ourselves. And that seems to be sufficient to keep this from escalating any further between the US and Russia. Um, and you know Biden has gotten a little little bounce out of this i think he stow- he showed pretty pretty strong leadership during this crisis um in, in a way that i haven't <laughs> frankly seen from him in other crises like covid um and uh so i think that mega is a little bit on the run here actually um like, in other words um when the when the rubber hits the road of worshiping vlad putin um and he does something like this it, it's much different than a, than a sort of abstract, like, well, they sort of interfered in our elections. And he seems to be a bad person. <laughs> but he really hates that cancel culture, you know? And he's, you know, he said, uh, Vlad Putin's standing up for nationalism and, and traditional values. And it's like, okay, yeah, what part of nationalism and, and traditional values is, uh, is conquering a sovereign country that does not want to be ruled by you? Uh, I, I think there's a, there's a sense in which, aside from Tucker Carlson's show and these, these 10 idiots in Congress, um, the cognitive dissonance here is just, is just too great to continue with the charade that, that Vladimir Putin is, some, is something we should be, Putinism is something we should be aspiring to. Now that doesn't mean when the war's over, they won't go right back to it. <laughs> they will. Um, but, uh, this, the split in the, in the right that's caused by this war is not just being felt here. Um, there are pro Putin forces sort of all across Eastern Europe, um, in particular Eastern and Central Europe, you know, places like, um, Slovakia and um, the Czech Republic and, and some of these places, Hungary, uh, where the sort of the quasi-authoritarian prime minister of Hungary now has to face up to his, like he's, they're in NATO, right? Hungary's in NATO. And uh, you've got the prime minister who's like r- backsliding democracy in Hungary and is, was very friendly with Putin. And now it's like, okay, dude, you gotta pick a side, <laughs> right? Like it's, it's, it's NATO or, or, or Russia um, and you can't thread this needle anymore you can't just sort of quietly accept the help of these authoritarian um, uh, saboteurs to get elected and to, and to use um, their sort of like populist anger against a culturally changing country to your political advantage um, when, when that entity is doing what it's doing right now. So um, I, I, I think this is pretty, I don't, I'm not, I'm not saying this is going to be an issue like 10 months from now then in <laughs> the elections, but at least in the moment, I think this is a not great political look for a lot of Republicans who have been tacitly or openly in bed with Putin for the last five years. Um, now kind of waking up with a little hangover in the morning and like, I oh,
0: mean, who's this? <laughs> who did I bring home from the bar? Yeah. Lord. <laughs> well, let's talk about it as an issue 10 months from now. And I, Lord knows what the state of the, the war itself will be. Uh, but I've, I've found... Uh, this distinction, uh, Republicans are trying to draw just so illuminating about the Republican mindset right now. So how, follow me on this one. There was a vote, uh, in the Senate about, uh, arming, uh, sending, a, a funding, uh, arms for, uh, Ukraine and, uh, almost all the, the Republicans, I think all the Republicans voted against it, uh, if I'm forgetting it, missing a Republican voted for it, I humbly apologize to you. I was pretty much a party-line vote. Uh, and the reason cited, uh, David, and I'm paraphrasing the great minds of the Republican Party, including like some of their quote-unquote more moderates, like Mitt Romney, uh, the reason cited is that while they were willing to spend uh, U.S. tax dollars on wa- uh, arms for Ukraine, they were not willing to spend U.S. tax, tax dollars on programs that would benefit U.S. citizens, that was pork. Weapons for Ukraine is a legitimate uh, is a legitimate object to spend money on, and so as much as they want to support Ukraine, they could not bring themselves to do so because it would meant giving pork to Americans. I read this stuff. This is the position of the Republican Party right now, David. This is what they think is a winning strategy as they go to the American voters. If the American voters vote this, I'm like, (laughs) if they support this distinction, help me out here, David. This distinction between pork and legitimate expenditures. Anytime you buy a gun, it's legitimate. Anytime you what? Give food aid to some poor family. That's pork. Please explain to me uh, how the, Re- the Republicans are going to win with this message come November. Go ahead.
1: First of all, I've never understood this at all because pork is delicious. Okay.
0: <laughs> um, and
1: the, you know, the, the use of pork as an ad hominem attack against any kind of spending. I'm like, I don't know what, I mean, what is a Pork belly? Is it fried? <laughs> yeah, sounds good to me. Um, I think, Fundamentally here, it's like the Republican position is um, free javelin missiles for for uh, Zelensky, but no free lunches for American schoolchildren. Right. <laughs> yeah. um, and I don't think that that's a, a good or popular message, but it but it's what they did. And so, of course, they voted against the spending, the overall spending bill and then immediately turned around and said, give us a you know give us a separate approach, appropriation for Ukraine. Um, setting up a sort of classic stupid American politics standoff um, where where we have to. Um, point our guns at each other for for two weeks before coming to some sort of an agreement, which I think will be reached to send money to to Ukraine. But of course, it's an expression of of Republican priorities um, to spend functionally unlimited amounts of money on the military and supporting Ukraine. And of course, I support supporting Ukraine right now, um, but I also support feeding um, schoolchildren and extending the the child tax credit and expansion of a dozen other um, programs that would really help ordinary Americans. The funniest thing I saw in the last week... (laughs) Somebody on there was the news about the you know whatever weapons we, we sent that day to to Ukraine and somebody said um, Russia is about to find out why, why the U.S. doesn't have national health care. <laughs> <laughs> so um, yeah, it's it's frustrating to me. I mean, I remember when when Republicans swept the House and Senate in 2010, um, like like three years after they wrecked the global economy. Um, and sent us into a, a recession whose after effects are still being felt. I thought, I cannot believe that we are turning around and giving power right back to these people. Like, it's just astonishing. Um, and I, I wish that Americans were more in favor of an expansion of the social safety net. I mean, I wish, I just wish that they were, but it's like they, they like these individual policies. And then once somebody calls it, um, you know, government handouts they're like, okay, no, no, let's not do that. Um, there's just, there's this abstract, sense of uh individualism that people are drawn to in the u.s even as a, a pollster asks you about these, these policies one by one people will say like yeah it sounds great you know but um but in the aggregate they tend to turn on these things especially in, in times of crisis like we're in where people are maybe more focused on inflation and the price of gas and uh, other other disruptions to the economy uh, like my washing machine broke the other day and I'm not I'm not going to vote for Trump because of this. Okay, I just I just want to tell you. My washing machine broke the other day, a guy came out, did all the work on it, you know, f- fixed it, replaced the pump, and then he ran it and it was loud and he was like, "Oh, by the way, um <laughs> this isn't the right part. I just put, you know, I put the wrong part um deliberately into your machine because because there's like a month's long wait for the actual um whatever, but I don't know anything about anything that's not politics. So like a hose or a a gadget or a a lever, something that takes water and puts it into my clothes. It's supposed to be coming from South Korea and it's not. So, you know, uh, people are like, I can't get my fridge fixed and and things are 8% more expensive than they were last year. Um, And uh, I don't like these guys. And that's unfortunately probably going to be closer to the forefront of, of a lot of people's minds in November than, Uh, The fact that Democrats are the ones that want to feed the children and Republicans are the ones that want to starve them so that we can send missiles to other countries.
0: Wow. That was a great riff. Uh, And this is something else I don't understand. Uh, Following up on what you said, why anybody, what evidences are in the universe that suggests that somehow or other, you'll get that part if Donald Trump is president, the connection between one thing and the other thing I I always boggles me. I'm like, what do you think Donald Trump's going to do? And yet I know what you're saying. There's just like this instinctive reaction. Like we want to, here we are waging war and pounding ourselves in the chest about uh, how we despise Putin. And yet there's so many aspects of Putin's character that, Voters in this country seem to love the strong man, the, the bully, the tyrant. The, the He doesn't worry about political correctness. He says what he wants to say, even if it offends people. I like that. I see that in local Chicago politics. We're, we're not going to take that dive. I do that for the rest of the show, the uh, rest of the week. But I see it. There's such an adoration for nasty Bully mayors in this city. Oh, that's how you lead. You got to be mean. So I don't know. Help me. Help me, uh, David. You study politics obsessively. You write about this stuff. What do people see a connection between parts from South Korea and an autocrat like like Donald Trump, who is a grifter on top of everything else? So explain to me why they think having an autocrat in the White House will mean they'll get their washing machine parts from South Korea?
1: Well, it's a good question. Um, <laughs> I think probably what's really going on here, you know how um, when, when Gallup asks about, you know, your your estimation of a president's performance in office, uh, the further away you get from the person's presidency, the more people tend to say that they liked them. Um, and this is... Uh, you know, the, the way that you remember the good things about a relationship that ends you know, like three years later, you're like, Oh, you know, that's a good times. Right. Um, and, um, even though it was like, you know, completely toxic and hated each other but three years later, you're like, ah, oh, geez, you know, I, I think that, I think what probably is going on here is some people uh, are thinking to themselves like, oh, man, remember 2019, you know, the, the, economy <laughs> was, the economy was booming and, we uh, right. weren't all uh, dying of a plague and. I make sure this ding dong got on Twitter twice a day and, and said something ridiculous, but like, but my life was certainly better than it is right now. Um, and so I think that Trump may ultimately benefit from this nostalgia for the world as it was before, before COVID happened. Um, he may benefit from short memories in terms of the more outrageous things he did, which was not really, uh, you know, the mo- the damage that he did was not on Twitter. It was undermining the rule of law um, in the United States and and stoking um, widespread animus towards um, racial and ethnic minorities and uh, just sort of all the all the disgusting forces that he unleashed on on American life, ultimately, uh, are going to come down to people's estimation of how the economy is doing. Um, And that's I wish it wasn't so but it but it is. Um, I do think that you could probably predict future support for Republicans if you went into like every elementary school in America and you took a survey of those second graders and you said, uh, who are the five biggest jerks in your class? Um, and I guarantee you that those five biggest jerks are all going to be, you know, like, like who steals the lunch money in this room? Yep. Definitely going to be a congressman from, uh, you know, Florida's 17th district. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I, think that there's, I do think that Trump appeals to, to the, everybody's sort of like inner bully. Right. Um, it's, I think it's less about having a strong man in office than uh, um, sort of validating the kind of casual cruelty that, you, that we see all around us in humanity um, that I think younger people are trying to, to change. But, um, you know, he's I remember this essay in The Atlantic a few years ago by Adam server it's called The Cruelty is the Point. I don't remember um, that one. Go ahead. Oh, it's a great it's a great piece. I think it really uh, captured the essence of Trumpism, which was, you know, it was like trying to find the through line between all these terrible things they were doing, you know, the, the kids in cages and uh, you know, rolling back um, protections for for trans kids and all the stuff you see going on in red states right now where there's like this war on um, this war on gender minorities and and um, you know, outlawing abortion and and sort of was just like <laughs> the thing that connects all these actions is cruelty. Um, is, 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 uh, this sort of dying white majority with its traditional values, um, taking great pleasure and glee in, and putting people back into their place and doing so with as much cruelty as possible. And I think that that's what they see in Putin. You know, they, they look at Putin and they see, um, someone unencumbered by the inconveniences of democracy. Um, Someone unencumbered un- by uh, a sense of humanity about, about people that he's inflicting harms on, um, who is, poses as like the protector of, you know, uh, of religion, a traditional religion. It's like hilarious coming from a former KGB agent, but sure. Um, and, uh, and, you know, they say nice, like, oh, this, like, this, they're white, right? It's like white traditional people led by an authoritarian strongman with a cruelty streak um, who's willing to flatten cities in, in Chechnya. Um, to, to get what he wants and that's what they want that's what they want out of trump now trump's too stupid um to, to really to do any of that um effectively but but he did he was very effective at, at i think undermining some core american values and and the faith of, of americans in the political system and in one another and for those reasons and more actually the, the prospect of him coming back to power is just so terrifying because he would ride back into power um not just with all those plans but but with a sense of like satisfaction and vengeance, you know, um, it's like, okay, I'm back and I'm going to show you how how things are really going to go here.
0: By the way, I just want to point out uh, to anybody out there that, uh, you could get washing machine parts during the Obama administration as well. Uh, I would argue that you could get washing machine parts under George W. Bush's administration. I don't recall as much opposition as I have toward Bill Clinton ever having a problem getting washing machine parts. So there's absolutely no direct correlation between washing machine parts availability and Donald Trump in the White House. Just tell you that, America, okay? (laughs) Been living a long time. Never had a trouble getting washing machine parts. In fact, I'll go for Nixon washing machine parts, Carter washing... Uh, and, and there was a great analogy about the, the, the biggest jerk in a classroom uh, would end up being Republican. I would argue if it's in Chicago, uh, that person's got the biggest uh, jerk in a, any school has the greatest likelihood of being elected mayor of the city of Chicago. Uh, there's, <laughs> I think there's an, a, a direct correlation. Uh, All right, you mentioned COVID. Let's close out with a conversation about COVID. This is on my mind so much, the politicalization of COVID in this country. Uh, This sort of gets into a little bit of what you were talking about, the mindset of America. Uh, Somehow or other, they equate Donald Trump with the availability of things they can't get now, washing machine parts just being one. And I know exactly what you're saying because my washing machine broke down about a week ago, David. so I was right there with you. All right, um, so... I'm just, like, where we're at, and I'll I'll just give you this little anecdote that I heard from a friend of mine who's a public school teacher in Chicago, and she's teaching at a public school in Chicago, uh, right now, we do not have a, a mask mandate in the city of Chicago. We can get into all that a little bit. Uh, and out of nowhere, the uh, school engineer walks into her classroom, and he's on the phone, uh, his cell phone was somebody. She does not know who it was, probably someone from downtown, someone from the central office. And he walks up to this illustration that she had on the wall of a kid wearing a mask, took it down and threw it away. And the notion was that we have to bend over backwards, not making this up, David Ferris, to be quote unquote neutral. Okay, this is the rule coming. This is how the bureaucracy of the Chicago Public Schools right now views mask mandates, masks. We have to be neutral. There's a lawsuit that was filed. So they're worried about parents and uh, like Trump areas of the city filing suits. We must be neutral. This is, I, I guess, propaganda, pro mask propaganda. This is how far the country has moved to the right on covid and i watch it and it never fails democrats always retreat uh, if democrats just one little tweet from a republican the entire democratic party does a focus group uh analysis on some suburbanite voter in milwaukee area and then they retreat david i'm very disappointed in my democratic party at this uh juncture of the COVID like I call the eye of the hurricane where we're at right now with COVID. I just read your recent essay about uh, COVID and our country's response to it. And where we go from here, you make some very compelling points uh, as you did the last time on the show. But I I don't think uh, David, after two years of COVID this country's learned anything. Uh, If you disagree with me, feel free to step up and let me have it go. (laughs) Uh, well, we never learn
1: anything, right? So that's, that's evergreen. Um, I think the, the sort of the continued partisan division over COVID is, is just the most depressing thing to come out of the last two years after, of course, the 965,000 people who have died, which is the most depressing thing about the pandemic is all the death and suffering and the people still, um, are still getting harmed by it. Um, I think, you know, so much of our debate right now, is focused on on masks um, in a way that I think is not really productive for either party nor for society, um, because I, I, the reality is the safest thing that you can do for yourself and your family is get vaccinated. Um, and there's this like hardcore portion of the public. I don't know what it is, fifteen percent or so of of adults are, are simply have become so hardened in their resistance to getting the COVID vaccine that they're now telling pollsters that they're not in favor of any vaccines for kids Um, and vaccines, you know, for things like measles and mumps and all that jazz um, doing that through the schools uh, is one of the single most effective things that we've done in public health in in the last century, um, which was to, to beat these, um, to beat these diseases and these viruses um, by, by progressively vaccinating children and, and mandating it, you know, Um, sorry, but vaccine mandates are not new. So it's um, it's just it's disappointing, Um, but it's also scary uh, because it seems like we may need to be getting vaccinated every six months or a year with updated formulas, just as we do for the flu. Um, And that we may ultimately end up in a similar place to the flu vaccine, which is the flu vaccine is only 50 or 60 percent effective at preventing infection. I remember right before COVID. My whole family got the flu and we'd all had the flu vaccine. Um, and, uh, you know, I've got like doctors in my family and I, you know, they explained to me, okay, you know, I mean, you, you, you weren't that sick. Right. And I was like, no, I wasn't that sick. Um, in fact, I didn't even think I had the flu because it was so mild. Um, and, uh, and the, the best thing that the flu vaccine does for you is it keeps you out of the hospital, but, and it's very good at that. It's very good at getting, keeping people out of the hospital from the flu. Um, we should, I should really think we should have more data. I don't know that the sort of public messaging around the flu vaccine is so puzzling to me. Um, but even even with the, with the significant reduction in hospitalization and death from the vaccine, only 50% of, of Americans get the flu vaccine every year.
0: Um, How much did you say? 50, what percentage?
1: 15? 50. Five zero. Oh, so about five zero. Okay, okay, okay. 40 or 50 people, 40 or 50% of the public gets the flu vaccine in any given year. Um, and those numbers are just not going to cut it in terms of taking COVID out of the crisis level and into endemicity. Right? Like we we have to get significantly more people vaccinated. We have to get more people boosted. Um, the Biden administration's vacillating on on whether the booster was needed in the fall. I think it was really destructive in terms of people's perceptions of whether they need it, because the the single most important factor in keeping people out of the hospital during the Omicron surge is whether they were boosted. You know, I mean, obviously the vaccine, you know, two t- shot vaccine had a significant impact, but it was the it was that third shot, the booster that seemed to have been most effective at preventing se- se- uh, severe disease. And so we have to, you know, to me, the conversation about masks is a is a distraction from the from the real public health work that needs to be done, um, which is ramping up a, an ongoing vaccination campaign that needs widespread public buy in that we simply don't have right now. Um, and so every minute that we spend arguing about masks is a minute that we're not spending persuading our neighbors to get vaccinated. And uh, you know we've, we've been doing this COVID stuff for a year. I mean, you remember how angry I was at unvaccinated people over the summer, and I, I like, I still am. I mean, I'm still filled with rage at people who have taken an ideological position against vaccines because it has been so destructive for our healthcare system. But you know, I, the reality is we have to share a country with these people, um, at least for the time being, and so we can't necessarily give up on getting them vaccinated. And so one of the more disappointing things to me of the past month, less so, more so than the lifting of the mask mandate, which I, you know, I, I kind of can see both sides on that, um, is the, is the lifting of the vaccine mandates, um, around the city. So, uh, I went to meet a friend for a drink last night and I kind of walked in the bar like, Hey, uh, we still doing this vaccine mandate. Do I need to show you my Because She was like, no, we're done with that. You know, like it was like a, like a huge hardship for someone to take a piece of paper out of their pocket and show it to you. Um, so that's, uh I don't understand why why that decision was made um, as far as masks in, in schools and schools uh, and, and CPS. you know, I don't, I don't have a child in CPS right now, so I don't, I can't tell you exactly what's happening in there. I know I, I live next to a school and I walked by the playground today. and People were outside and 99% of those kids were in masks. So I think that um, I think a lot of students, particularly older ones who are given the choice by their, by their parents are choosing to continue to mask. Um, we, we lifted the mask mandate at Roosevelt University this week, um, and it's a, a kind of a different story there. I th- I'd say probably 70% of my students have chosen not to mask. Um, and I think that there's, to me, the public discourse around masking is not really quite caught up with the realities of how effective it is against Omicron in particular, um, and it's a, which is another reason why I think that the whole debate ultimately is a, is a non-productive distraction. but. You know the, the worst outbreaks in the world right now are in Hong Kong and South Korea, where you have close to 100% compliance with masking. Um, if you look at the case curves in the different states, the mask mandate states, the no mask mandate states, the, the states where people were militantly anti-mask, <laughs> you don't really see that much of a difference. And I'm not happy about that, Ben, because that means one of the things that we've been using to control the the pandemic is not as a, is, is not particularly effective anymore. Um, and that, to me, that's like less a reason like gloating and be like, I told you masks don't work. And it's like, they really did until recently. I think they really did work. Um, but this thing is so contagious that uh, it doesn't seem to be having uh, what they call population wide effects. Um, so obviously if I, if I went to class tomorrow, well, that would be Saturday. It'd be really dumb. Nobody would be there. But so I went to class on Tuesday um, and every single one of my students and I were in a, a tight, well-fitted K95. Um you know, obviously, that would be a safer environment than, than one in which everyone is unmasked. But the the reality of the way that people are using masks and the kinds of masks that they're using, um, even my students who continue are continuing to mask are not wearing good masks. So um, I'm just not convinced that masks are the tool that is going to get us out of the pandemic. You see a lot of claims on Twitter that are like, you know, the, the masks come off and the cases go up, and um, you know, we got to if we want to beat COVID, we have to mask. And I I don't think that's true. They have their they certainly have their place when things get out of hand um, but I think that the path out of the pandemic is uh, other things that we need to invest in like a like a vaccine that can that can be good for all the variants. it's called a pan coronavirus vaccine um, campaigns to get people vaccinated with the original um, vaccine from from 2021 2020 2021 and, um, these things to me are all ultimately going to have much broader reaching impact um, than whether people are are choosing to mask and so, you know, the, they've got this, you know, the cases are surging in Europe, I wouldn't be surprised if we were all back in masks in a month. Um, I think some people are going to look at that as as vindication of their stance. To me, I'm kind of, you know, I've been happy to take a, a little bit of a break from masking, especially if we have to go back to it. Um, I don't think that there's necessarily a direct correlation between lifting mandates and cases going on. The cases are still coming down here. We lifted, the man- we lifted that mandate three weeks ago. So anyway, I, all of which is a way of saying you can't shame people for masking, right? Like the, the, the right-wing sort of like anger, like, vi- you know, visceral, like, ugh, masks, you know? Like, <laughs> child abuse. Um, they uh, just like, they hate them, you know? Like, they hate them like they hate immigration. Um, and that's that's just, that's so stupid, you know? It's just a, it's one tool that we have to fight epidemics, okay? I'm a pragmatist. I, like, I'd like to look at the data and ask whether something is working. Um rather than getting ideologically attached to it. So the for me, the past few months have been me kind of looking at, at at least the data that I can see and thinking like, I'm I'm not sure how effective this this intervention is. Um and maybe, you know, you can go either way with that. Okay, we need to get everybody in a high quality mask, or um or we address the just pandemic through pandemic through other means. And anyway,
0: I've been talking for a while. So I'm, No, I'm no, it's a, it was a good riff. And I'm, I'm pretty much with you on it. <clears throat> the, uh, I just, uh, the, 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 what is it? The lesson I took from that story, uh, my friend told me, uh, is the panic of Democrats. That's the lesson I took. So you're absolutely correct. You want to have an analytical discussion of the impact masks have uh, and whether a mask mandate helps. That's one thing. But uh, I don't believe, even if you, uh, David Ferris, think that masks have an exaggerated impact uh, on uh, preventing the spread of COVID, I don't think you would go from uh, room to room at Roosevelt and take down pictures of people with masks, go, you're spreading disinformation. It's like Ron DeSantis, who really showed his cards in that moment with the kids. They went from Liberty, oh, you make up your mind whether you want to wear a mask or not, to take that mask off. And and Democrats, the message they get is, uh, yeah, we had to take our masks off because then we'll look weak compared to Ron DeSantis, and we'll lose the all important suburban swing vote in Tampa. So I, yeah, I hear what you're saying, and uh, I just shake my head. By the way, I'll just close with this, just to how bizarre the world is. One place, they still have vax card mandates and mask mandates. I just discovered this last night. My wife and I went to play the Goodman Theater. I urge everybody, it's an excellent play. A little shout-out to Sean Hayes. Uh, It's called um, Goodnight, Oscar, but that's not the point of the story. Uh, The story is they still require you to show a vax card to get into the Goodman Theater. I was like, whoa, this is like the one place in the world. that, And you have to wear a mask. So we all leave. We get on an elevator to go uh, get our cards in a parking garage. There's nobody wearing a mask. They wore the mask in the freaking theater. They're in the elevator, David. That's even more close. T- I just my I, my wife and I. Go, you know, you guys take that elevator and just cough on each other. I've gone the other direction. I've become such a germaphobe. I'm going to wear the mask. Oh, <laughs> I don't. COVID could be killed, and I'm still wearing a mask. Anybody. Come on, David. Chicagoans are a weird group. You you lived here now for how many years? They wear the mask when they go to the play, then they take the mask off when they're in the elevator. Please explain the logic there. I
1: <laughs> I saw I saw in the fall. I saw a student um, mask go to the bathroom and and take his mask off when he walked into the bathroom. <laughs> I mean, okay. I mean, this seems like a, a relatively unsafe place to be unmasked. <laughs> Bathroom, um, but you, you do you. You know, uh, p- people just are not necessarily making rational decisions about this stuff. Um, you know, I think uh, I, I certainly could see the case for maintaining mandates and shared essential spaces and theaters, which tend to uh, to draw you know relatively older crowds. I think you know concerts and theaters, uh, people who are more vulnerable. So I don't understand why we can't have this conversation and take it on in some in some cases on a case by case basis. Where, you know, where they would be most effective, where they won't be most effective. You know, Roosevelt, unlike CPS, is an environment where everyone is vaccinated, and boosted, like literally everyone in the room is, is vaccinated and boosted. And, and that's a different risk environment than a, than, a, than a public school where only 24% of the kids are vaccinated. Um, it just is. So, um, I, you know, I, I'm going unmasked in some places. I'm, I'm still wearing a mask on in other places, a grocery store, and trains. I mean, I have to on the train, but I would anyway. Um, and so, uh, I don't know, It it is tiring, you know, to, to like, every time you leave your house, you're like, how many masks do I take? Like, well, yeah, I right. <laughs> yeah. Set. But, um, you know, you can't wish this stuff away. So it is what it is. We're, we is. We're gonna have to be dealing with it until, until we get it under control to the, to the point that it's not really disrupting operation of society anymore. And it just doesn't seem like we're quite there yet. So
0: by the way, shout out to the Goodman theater. They were passing out. They, if you don't have a mask, they give you a mask. So it's like an, an airport. We have a requirement here, and they had a whole uh, group. Of, by the way, I don't know if you got, if you like play, but uh Goodnight Oscar is well worth seeing. Uh, Sean Hayes, I don't know, he's a, if you ever, Will and Grace, he was in Will and Grace, he was a TV star. Oh, Just, yeah, yeah, okay. of course. He's yeah. a brilliant actor, that's all I gotta say. And a great uh, piano player. Anyway, all right, enough of an endorsement of that. David Ferris, I want to thank you very much for taking time every other week, comes on the show. And he kind of got a promotion, we, I, I should have led with this. Uh, he was featured on uh, MSNBC, uh, one of their talking head pundits. And uh, very proud of you, young man. Uh, you've used my show as a launch pad to a bigger career uh, so yeah, good job. You did That's really fair. good job. It
1: doesn't matter how many times I get on MSNBC. I'm still coming back here because this is fun.
0: So yeah, you know. it is fun. Uh, and, uh, although you may get a contract with them where they prohibit you from going, I've had guests who couldn't come on the show, but it's weird. It's weird. Like they can talk about some things, but they can't talk. I'm, going to leave, I'm not going to name names because I don't want to embarrass them. But they'll tell me, Ben, I can talk about this, but I can't talk about that because that's why they're contracted to come on. To, it's usually MSNBC. So I said, all right, we'll stay out of a conversation about that. Um, well, so I haven't offered any contracts, so uh, no. <laughs> we have to worry about that yet. I'll see you in two weeks. All right, weeks David straight, Ferris, bro. thank you very much. Uh, as always, it's a delight talking to you. Uh, that's David Ferris. I'm Ben Jarovsky. Take care, everybody. Music mm-hmm.